Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode features one of the world's most recognized advocates for cold water safety, Moulton Avery. And today, Moulton's going to share how he got his start in the world of cold water safety, how we can keep ourselves safe, bust a few myths about cold water, and he gives his best advice on how we can represent safe paddling to the paddling community as a whole. So enjoy today's episode with Moulton Avery. Hello, Moulton. How are you today? I'm good, John. Thank you so much. Fantastic. I appreciate you joining me today. So, Moulton, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Well, let's see. I'm... uh... I've been a paddler for about uh, 50 years. I started out in uh, in canoes. Then in 1984, I bought my first and uh, until recently my only sea kayak, which was uh, a real different uh, experience uh, than than canoeing. I've been paddling it ever since. Never looked back. What got you started as a paddler? You said 50 years ago. Yeah, a little yeah. over 50 years. What was it that drew you drew you to the water? Well, the first time I got in a canoe, it was uh, predictably uh, amusing because I was crashing into the banks. I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any idea about paddling. But a friend and I uh, had gone down to the Okefenokee National Swamp in, um, or Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge in Georgia, which is a an amazing place as long as you do it in the off season and the mosquitoes aren't there. And we rented this little aluminum canoe and we went out and we saw some rather large alligators and it was very exciting <laughs> and that kind of got me started after i graduated from college i uh, i'd become a little bit better at canoeing and i started a wilderness school uh, in north carolina i ran that for six years and and part of that uh, i got certified this was in the old days and so uh, i got uh, an american red cross uh, flatwater canoe certification and then i got my uh, whitewater canoe certification as an instructor uh, from uh, the american canoe association through the nantahala outdoor center which is a, a tremendous outfit in uh, in north carolina and then after i started uh, sea kayaking in 1984 I was uh, encouraged, uh, my kayak partner and I, Brian Price, were encouraged to uh, become at-large members of the uh, ACA's newly formed uh, National Coastal Kayak Committee. And so as a member of that, I worked with uh, with the committee to uh, start the first sea kayaking program for the American Canoe Association, uh, helped train some of the initial instructors and, and that sort of thing. But all along the way, uh, from the 1970s forward, I'd been interested in this intersection of human uh, physiology and heat and cold. And, and the reason being that in terms of wilderness travel, uh, if you're talking about safety and comfort, then the two things that you really have to address on the front end are heat and cold stress. And on the cold side, you know, if you're a trail hiker, it's how to keep warm in freezing weather or you know, how to deal with adverse weather on the trail, and you're up against hypothermia and frostbite. But out on the water, it's a little bit of a different story because when you get immersed in cold water, you're dealing with uh, some entirely different things uh, on the front end. And hypothermia almost becomes uh, a secondary uh, consideration. So what was it that got you started as an advocate for cold water safety? 
Well, it was, again, you know, this, uh, this whole idea of having students and asking myself the question, how can I keep them safe? And what are the things that they need to know? And uh, it was a recognition that in terms of cold water, that was one of the major threats. And it became apparent very early on uh, in my wilderness school days that this is what was killing people. So they would fall into cold water and, and they wouldn't last long at all. And there was just a series of tragedies. So I started doing uh, seminars and talks on them and, and uh by 1991, I was not only speaking at a lot of uh, sea kayaking, the early sea kayaking symposia, but I was also starting to write. So I, I did an article for Sea Kayaker magazine in 1991 on cold shock and also another one for Encyclopedia Britannica. And I was trying to get, you know, get the word out by publishing uh, as well as by speaking to different groups. The thing that drove me really in the early days was the fact that nobody knew really anything about cold shock uh, back in the 70s, uh, but they did know a little bit about hypothermia, but it wasn't widely known. And so I was, for various reasons, uh, I was very interested in safety right out the gate. You know, I almost got hypothermia on my first backpacking trip. Uh, <laughs> I almost got pinned and drowned under a bridge on my first kayaking trip. I almost uh, got killed on my first rappelling uh, trip. And uh, so, you know, those kind of things impress upon you the fact that things can go wrong very, very quickly and you're responsible ultimately for your own safety. And I just became, uh, I guess you could say, a safety advocate by default because, you know, if you're an instructor and you leave that information out, then uh, I think you're doing your, your students a disservice. So that's kind of how I sort of got in the side door of being a safety advocate. <laughs> so aside from having some of those, uh, those negative experiences that you just mentioned yourself, what qualified you to become an expert in this area? Well, nothing really. I had a degree in political science. And uh, one thing I learned during my four years in college was uh, the importance of doing methodical research. And so everything that I've learned about cold water safety and the physiology of heat and cold stress has been as a direct result of reading the scientific and medical literature. And that was a little difficult at first because uh, some of this stuff is written in a language that we, you know, it's technical and it's a language that we don't use uh, in everyday conversation, but you become familiar with it. And I felt it was important to have the information be science-based. So rather than saying, oh, this is my opinion, I could point to the scientific and medical literature and saying, well, these are the facts. This is what we found out through numerous studies. And here's how it applies to, let's say, your practical aspects of paddling. So I like to think of it in large measure as kind of a translation, taking uh, the complex scientific and medical information, translating it and, and uh, making it a little simpler, not dumbed down, but a little simpler and more practical uh, so that people can use it. And that's, that's the approach that I took. And, you know, after a while, I guess if you, if you do it long enough, uh, you become very familiar with a specific subject area. So if it comes to heat and cold stress, 
you know, I'm considered uh, an authority on the subject by virtue of, you know, some 40 years of, uh, of working in that, in that area. But if you get outside, you want to know something about immunology or uh, cosmology, well, <laughs> I'm a lot shallower in those areas than I am in heat stress or cold stress. So that 40, uh, 40 some odd years of research uh, culminated at some point in you forming the National Center for Cold Water Safety, right? Yes, it did. And I had been, uh, as I said, you know, I'd been writing and speaking, lecturing on the, on the subject for a long time. But I also took a little time off to raise my two daughters. And that took me, uh, as you can imagine, took me away from being as much of an avid kayaker for a little while. And what happened was I, I flew out to California for my um, older daughter's graduation from college. And I flew back and uh, I'd been getting more interested in uh, in being able to use the internet as a research tool. And I came back to Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time, and right on my desk is a Google alert that told me about these two young women who died in Casco Bay, Maine. You know, they got caught in a, a trap, really a classic trap. They, they'd gone out and the weather was calm, but there was a, a nasty uh, front coming in and they got blown offshore and they weren't dressed for immersion. They capsized and they died. And that just picked me up and shook me like a rag doll. Uh, I think in large measure, I mean, all of these things are tragic, but in large measure, I think because they were almost the same age as my two daughters were at the time, I just couldn't let it go. One of the things I did was to look around on the internet to see what sort of information was out there on cold water safety. And there wasn't much at the time. And what there was really didn't meet what I felt was a, a good standard. So there was a lot of in misinformation. There was an emphasis on hypothermia. There was almost nothing about cold shock. The parts about cold shock were, uh, I don't know how to say, you know, they, they just left out what I consider to be some very key information. And so that was kind of a decision point for me. I knew a lot about the subject and I, I just couldn't walk away from it. And I thought, well, what can, what can I do here? And so I knew how to start a nonprofit organization. I was, you know, an authority in the field. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start this National Center for Cold Water Safety and we're going to put this thing on the map. Well, you know, it, there's a big transition from the point where you say, I'm going to do something and you've got this gleam in your eye and fire in the belly, but there's nothing, there's nothing whatsoever to show for it. You know, it's just a dream. And I never would have gotten this far if it wasn't for, for the help that I got from a whole bunch of really good people who were also supportive of the idea. And that was really the genesis of the National Center for Cold Water Safety. And now it's been uh, 11 years uh, since we started it and uh, just about eight years uh, that the uh, website has been live. That's the genesis, if you will, for the, for the National Center. So tell us about the mission of the center. The mission really is uh, is twofold, and one of them is uh, to heighten awareness of the danger uh, that, that cold water poses to really anyone who is recreating on cold water. It's not just paddlers, but it could be anyone that's out boating. I think just to, to let people know that it is a very dangerous environment, but that there are things that you can do to reduce uh, the danger uh, should you happen to wind up in the water. 
And the other thing uh, was to have a resource that was science-based that anyone in the world could log on to for free. You know, don't have to register or pay dues or anything like that, but it's just there uh, as a resource that they can use to increase their margin of safety uh, when they're out on cold water. And, and because I'm a paddler, there, if you go to the website, you'll notice there is a definite emphasis on paddling, although the information is use, useful to a wide range of, of people. It's more heavily focused on the paddle sports community. So you've um, given a term a couple of times. You mentioned cold, uh, cold shock. So tell us a little bit about cold shock and what happens with cold shock. Well, I think, you know, a good way to segue into that would be to say, uh, you know, what is cold water? Because cold shock is, uh, is something that's triggered by cold water. And I'd say, uh, first, you know, when I'm asked that question, I say, uh, well, the first thing, let me say you should treat any water temperature below 70 Fahrenheit with caution. But I think to really put that question in perspective, I like to talk about some different water temperature or some different temperatures. Uh, for example, your skin temperature is around 91 Fahrenheit, which is why 85 Fahrenheit water feels cool if you get into it. Here's where it gets, uh, I think, even more interesting. The International Olympic Committee requires that pool temperatures be between 77 and 82 Fahrenheit. Now, why is that? It's because they don't want the water temperature to affect performance. They want an environmentally neutral playing field for those athletes. And we know from scientific studies that human respiration, your ability to control your breathing, is adversely affected when the water temperature is below 76. And what most paddlers don't realize is that if they capsize without the protection of a wetsuit or dry suit, they'll experience maximum intensity cold shock at water temperatures between 50 and 60 Fahrenheit. So we'll talk about that cold shock in a second. But I think what you find out is that if you fall into water that's between 50 and 60, you are immediately in a life-threatening situation. And, and I, I don't think that many people are aware of that. I think maybe if you talk to them about cold water, you know, they think, well, maybe if it's 35 or 40 degrees, but actually, you know, that's just, that's not the case. And as far as uh, cold shock is concerned, it falls, falls in a spectrum in terms of what happens to you when you fall into cold water. So if you are immersed in an unprotected way, so if, if you're not wearing what I call thermal protection, like a wetsuit or dry suit, there are three things that happen right on the front uh, that happen, and, and they're threats to your survival. And we can talk about each one of those. Uh, they're cold shock, incapacitation, and hypothermia. And the interesting thing about them is that these are, although they're three distinct threats, they affect you in different ways, but they all have one thing in common, and that's that they greatly increase your risk of inhaling water and drowning. The first thing that you're up against is cold shock, and that's the first threat to your survival, and it happens the moment that cold water makes contact with a large area of your skin. And I don't mean just your face, but 
this is more like your entire chest, your back, your abdomen, that sort of thing. It has to be a large surface area. You can't just get it by putting your hands in the water, uh, having water splash on your face or something like that. It has to be a reasonably large amount of skin. But the second that happens, uh, cold shock begins. Incapacitation is your second threat. And what that involves is cooling your muscles and nerves to the point where they simply stop working. That's also, that also exists on a spectrum. So at first, uh, your muscles get weak, and then they get a little weaker, and finally they don't work at all. And the colder the water, the faster that happens. Now, hypothermia, on the other hand, that's a different situation. It involves a drop in your deep body or core temperature, and that's, that's your brain, heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, in other words, uh, you know, what you'd call your vital organs. But the interesting thing about hypothermia is that even in very cold water, it takes roughly 30 minutes for an average adult's body temperature to drop below 95 and uh, or 95 Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius. That's where we medically define hypothermia as beginning. So it takes about 30 minutes. And the thing is, you have to survive cold shock and incapacitation to even get to that point. So what we find is that most people drown long before hypothermia becomes an issue. Looking at cold shock, as you can imagine, I get, I get that question a lot. You know, uh, a popular uh, version would be cold shock. Mm, that's when you gasp, isn't it? To which I would answer, yeah, sort of. But it's not just a little gasp like someone startled you. You know, you're walking down the hallway in, the, in your house, they jump out of, <laughs> of the closet, you know, and they go, boo, and, you know, you're scared. It's not like that. It's far more dramatic. It's full lung inflation. So it's like you take a gasp that is the maximum amount of air, inhaling the maximum amount of air that you can possibly get into your lungs. And this can happen multiple times in a row. And the thing to understand is it is totally out of your control. There's nothing you can do to, to stop it. And if your mouth happens to be underwater, when you gasp, you're done. You just drowned. And that's how fast it happens. So that's just the second you go in the water, you gasp. I like to say that this is the physiologically, short of being struck by lightning or hit by a bus, this is really one of the largest jolts physiologically that your body can experience. So you've got the gasping right on the front end, and right after the gasps, you have hyperventilation, which is rapid, uncontrolled breathing, and that creates all sorts of additional problems. On top of that, you're not able to hold your breath for very long. It varies from person to person, but your breath holding time is, is really dramatically affected. And you also feel, even though you're hyperventilating, you're breathing as fast as you can, you feel like you're suffocating. So in addition to increasing your odds of suddenly drowning from inhaling water, this loss of breathing control also causes swimming failure. And without the support of a PFD or something you can use as flotation, you're very likely to sink and immediately drown. And there's more. Your heart rate and blood pressure also go through the roof. So hopefully there's no weakness in that system. And another thing I think that people don't, don't really appreciate is that this kind of uh, a jolt to your body causes a huge reduction in your ability to think and function, uh, to call for help or get back in your kayak. 
And this kind, this mental confusion and disorientation can continue for a long time, even after you get out of the water. As I like to say uh, cold shock is a lot more than just a gasp. I don't know how else to put it. It, can, it really rattles your cage. Yeah. And it's a very, very uh, dangerous and disorienting and frightening experience. So how about these folks that um, are cold water swimmers, for example? I'm, I'm here in the Great Lakes. We've got uh, um, somebody that I know that regularly swims in 50-something degree um, waters. So how does that person avoid this? Well, that's a great that's a great question. There's also uh, this really interesting international ice swimming association. They've got uh, they've got a website and whatnot, and and they're actually out there swimming in 32 Fahrenheit water, 33 Fahrenheit water, and it's uh, you know I look at that and I just go oh man <laughs> you know, but here's the thing, your body is a remarkable uh, system, and you can actually get used to that cold water immersion. So with, you know, a, a relatively small number of uh, short-term immersions in very cold water, you can uh, reduce and eventually eliminate the cold shock response. There are very few paddlers that are willing to do that because it is, uh, it's quite a process and it is very painful on the front end. So you just don't, don't see that many people doing it, but you you can get used to it. And the other thing is uh, your body increases the layer of subcutaneous fat, the fat that's right underneath the skin, as a direct response to repeated swimming in cold water. So let's say you started out in 65 Fahrenheit water, you know, and you gradually increased your exposure and you you do that. You can see this in Olympic swimmers uh, if you compare their physiology or their physique to runners. The runners are all rail thin, you know, they're ripped, you know, they tend to have a particular body type. Whereas the swimmers are much more sleek. You can, you, you know, you notice, uh, you know, that they have this, this layer, this additional layer of fat uh, on their body. So the more fat you have, the longer you're going to last in a cold water immersion. Fat doesn't do anything to prevent cold shock, but it does a tremendous amount to delay incapacitation and hypothermia. And this is, you know, you can look to the natural world and you see all these aquatic mammals like seals and whales and walruses, and you go, well, how do they do it? Swimming around in the Arctic Ocean. And the reason they do is because they've got this tremendous layer of, of insulating fat. You know, they, it's termed blubber, but really it's just insulating fat. And that's what keeps them from getting into trouble. We don't, uh, most people don't have, uh, they're not acclimated to cold and they don't have uh, enough uh, subcutaneous fat to do that. So we have to use wetsuits and dry suits in order <laughs> to uh, to eliminate cold shock or delay incapacitation and hypothermia. So one of the key things with paddlers is that there's a big difference between being out on your on your boat and 75 degrees, and all of a sudden now you're in 50 degree water. There's that immediate immersion, as opposed yeah. to the description that you gave, for example, of the ice swimmers, where there's a prolonged easing into and getting used to that water. You don't have that opportunity when you go from suddenly 75 degrees to 50 degrees. No, you don't. I think one of the things that uh, 
that does get people into trouble, even if they would normally be inclined to wear a wetsuit or dry suit as they, they cite a fear of overheating. Uh, we address that uh, on our website, and I have uh, also uh, a, cup, a video out about it and, and another article that explains how you can use evaporation to cool yourself off when you're paddling in, in hot weather. So it's, it's a reasonable objection but it's one that's easily overcome if you understand the techniques for offloading uh, excess body heat. So it's one of those uh, things where, again, education is, is the key to, uh, to getting around that sort of problem. So I'll definitely uh, get links from you later, and we'll include those in the show notes for the cooling and evaporation okay. information. But um, for our listeners' benefit now, give us a little preview of that technique. Well, the thing is, let's just uh, say you're you're paddling and the uh, the water's cold, uh, or or let's just say you're paddling and the water's warm, and it's a it's a hot day. The water is maybe uh, you know seventy five or eighty degrees, and you're out and the sun's blazing down and the air temperature is ninety. The thing to do, well, you have a choice. You can either be hot and uncomfortable. Or you can wet your clothes, wet your hair, wet your hat. And as the water evaporates from that clothing, it, keep, it offloads heat and it keeps you cool. And I demonstrate this in the, the little video that I made during a heat wave. It's about 100, I don't know, 115 degrees outside. And I put on my 7 millimeter uh, long sleeve shorty wetsuit and get out in the backyard and if I didn't soak that wetsuit with water and use evaporation, I'd have a heat stroke probably in about 10 or 15 minutes. But when I, I wet the wetsuit or when I wet my clothing, all of a sudden, instead of 115 degrees, it feels like it's more like 75. And it's just an absolutely remarkable uh, technique. Uh, and, and you don't have to use it just paddling. I mean, if you're doing yard work and it's real hot outside, you know, wet your hair, wet your hat, put on a wet t-shirt. It makes a tremendous difference in your comfort. So using evaporative cooling, and then we've also got convective cooling and conductive cooling. Exactly. And, and the, uh, you know, if there's a little wind on top of it, then, then that, uh, that convection actually increases the effectiveness of the evaporation. But it's the evaporation itself that actually draws, that's a heat removal technique. It draws heat away from your body. So it's, uh, it's very, very effective. And, uh, I'm on a mission to, <laughs> to uh, educate as many people as I can about it. It was really a core concept in our uh, when I had the wilderness school back in North Carolina. We just uh, emphasized that. Like I said, I'll definitely get some links from you, and we'll get that information out in the show notes so folks can take advantage of that. Um, one of the things you have on your website is what you call the five golden rules for cold water safety. So tell us a little bit about those rules. Well, the five golden rules they are kind of a distillation of the practical aspects of cold water safety. Uh, because, you know, we've got this uh, body of scientific knowledge where we know about cold shock and incapacitation and hypothermia. But, you know, what can you actually do practically to keep yourself safe? And so the five golden rules were developed after analyzing hundreds of close calls and fatalities. And each uh, single, every single rule is important in its own right, but it's the combination of all five 
that empowers you to build a strong and effective cold water safety net. So the first rule is wear your PFD. Uh, the second rule is always dress for the water temperature. Uh, number three is field test your gear. Number four is swim test your gear. And number five is plan for the worst that can happen. We go into a great deal of detail on the website explaining the rationale behind the five golden rules, how we think they, they fit together. They're very practical. They're easy to understand. And if you just pay attention to them and, and put them all together, that's where you get your, your safety net. When we were designing these, obviously, uh, and, and, and trying to educate people about them, we certainly get pushback, uh, for example, on where your PFD. The majority of paddlers who uh, just say, well, I, I don't need to wear a PFD uh, or life jacket because I can swim. And, you know, that's true enough, except what they don't understand is two things. The first is in kayaking, there's a huge difference between swimming in a pool and swimming in deep open water. And that's particularly true if waves are present. So that's number one. Number two is both cold shock and incapacitation cause something called swimming failure. And in the cold shock phase, swimming failure happens because you can't coordinate your breathing, your out of control breathing and your swimming strokes. And that's what swimming's all about, is coordinating breathing and stroke. So if you can't do that, that causes swimming failure. In the incapacitation phase, it's because your arms get so cold that they stop working. They become too weak for you to use them to swim. And when that happens without a PFD or something you can use as flotation, as soon as swimming failure happens, you're in deep trouble. And we've got plenty of studies that show that people who were considered to be good swimmers have drowned in cold water within six to 10 feet of safety because they couldn't swim that far in order to save their own lives. And so that's kind of the rationale uh, behind golden rule number one, always wear your PFD. As far as dressing for the water temperature, when we say always dress for the water temperature, what we mean is if the water's cold, you need to wear thermal protection like a wetsuit or dry suit so that you don't experience cold shock. It also means wearing enough thermal protection so that you remain calm, warm, and able to function physically and mentally while you're in the water, whatever the water temperature happens to be. So that means wearing a, a wetsuit that's thick enough to protect you from the cold and snug enough to work properly. It means wearing a, a dry suit that doesn't leak, uh, that you haven't excessively burped in terms of getting all the air out of it, and that has enough warm clothing underneath it to protect you from the cold. If you think about it, all of this is really wearing enough protection to keep you functioning if you have to swim or get towed to shore or to, to do a rescue. And if you can't get to shore, you need enough protection to keep you alive long enough to be rescued. That's the whole idea behind the thermal protection. And when you get to, to rule uh, number three and four, which is field testing and swim testing, they're both kind of on the same page, but field testing is making sure that your gear works the way it's supposed to. So it's getting your gear, get out there, uh, do whatever you're going to do kayaking in a relatively protected location and test that gear 
until you become familiar with it and you're sure that you can use it effectively. And the reason for that is because this cold water gear is really survival gear. In an immersion, you're relying on that gear to save your life. And so it makes sense if you look at it as survival gear. I think it changes the focus, it changes the argument a little bit, and it helps people to understand why they need to become intimately familiar with that gear. I can have all the quality gear, but if I don't know how to use that gear, it's not of much value. No, it's it, it's not. And it's getting used to your gear there. You know, there are all sorts of little things that, that can go wrong uh, that, you, that you will learn from getting out there and messing around with the gear and just making sure that it works the way you thought it was going to work. So it's just really it's just saying to people you need this is survival gear you need to, to you know you need to get in the water with it it's not enough just to buy a wetsuit or dry suit and go paddling and never get in the water because you you just have no idea how it works and i've seen people who wear dry suits with uh, a t-shirt and shorts underneath it and we like to say that just by itself a dry suit has about as much insulating properties as a shower curtain so you've got to wear insulation underneath it in order to make it work. The swim testing, on the other hand, is something that uh, my, uh, my wife and I do every single time before we launch the kayaks. We put on our gear, we get into the water, we just splash around a little bit to make sure everything's working. And so if you think about a, like a general aviation analogy, swim testing is like a pilot's pre-flight test. It's a last minute check to make sure your protective equipment is working, that you're wearing enough protection to keep you warm if you wind up in the water. And that final rule, plan for the worst that can happen, that's just, I think, common sense in any wilderness uh, or outdoor activity. You need to try and think of whether you have all the bases covered because stuff does happen. And the question is not whether it will happen. It's when it does happen, what are you going to do about it? One of the disadvantages that beginners have is they cannot possibly begin to imagine all the things that could go wrong on even a modest kayak outing. And we help them out with that with a long list of things that have happened on various kayak outings. And that's on the website to sort of you know, help prime the pump a little bit. But, you know, this is all very practical stuff. And I I have a lot of experience, you know, teaching and, and training people uh, in terms of planning safe trips. And one of the things I like to say to trip organizers is you show up at the put in, you've organized this trip and here come all these people, you know, they've been getting into their gear up at the car, you know, whatever. And you've been down here, you know, making sure your boat's all tricked out and you've got your stuff together. And then they all show up and they're wearing dry suits. How do you know that they're actually dressed for the water temperature? Sure, they're wearing dry suits, but you have no idea, really, unless you actually saw them get into the dry suit with their gear, you don't know what they're wearing underneath it. And so that's that's number one. Number two is how do they know that they're actually dressed for the water temperature? And that's why we swim test, because that is something that right at the start of the trip, it injects reality into that system. It lets you know 
whether or not you're actually dressed for the water temperature. And when we do these swim tests, you know, a lot of people will get in the water, it's 40, 45 degree water, and they're very surprised that they become cold quickly. And other people who are dressed, uh, you know, with more insulation, they stay in the water longer. So I'm just, what I'm saying about the swim testing and field testing is you've got to be realistic and you've got to be practical. You've got to understand how the equipment works and you've got to make sure that it works. And that would seem to be common sense, but it's not just self-evident. And I think that's because, you know, people don't, you know, they don't take cold water as seriously as they should. And so, you know, you asked previously, uh, you know, what's one of the missions of the, of the center? And I think it's to educate people so that they do take cold water more seriously. And I, I'm often asked why they don't. And, and I think one of the main reasons is that they don't have any experience actually being in cold water. So a lot of, a lot of paddlers, they just, it, it's never happened to them, haven't turned over yet. They haven't gone into the water uh, because they're afraid they're going to get cold or whatever, or they don't trust their gear or whatever. So they really have no idea how it feels or what cold water can do uh, to your body. And I think another thing that trips people up is if I say 50 Fahrenheit or 10 Celsius water, they mentally compare it with 50 Fahrenheit or 10 Celsius air, which doesn't feel that cold by comparison. So this is a comparison that they're doing. It's a little trick that your brain does behind the scenes without you even thinking about it. It's a calculation that's almost instinctive and it reaches a completely mistaken conclusion, which is that there isn't any difference between 50 Fahrenheit air and 50 Fahrenheit water. And that's the mistake, uh, I think, that gets a lot of paddlers into trouble because when it comes to heat loss, water is very, very different than air. It has much greater density. It immediately destroys most of the insulation provided by your clothing. It also conducts heat away from your body much faster than air. So this whole thing of, of making this, uh, this mistaken comparison, I think, is something we can overcome by education because even if water is the same temperature as air, it feels a lot colder. And, and one of the best examples I can think of that is that 45 Fahrenheit air feels cold, but 45 Fahrenheit water feels like it's burning your skin. For me today, I was uh, 50, 50 degrees outside. I didn't wear a jacket, so I didn't have any right. thermal protection. But I'm probably not going to want to jump into 50-degree water. No, it's a, it's a completely, completely different experience. Uh, you know, you can walk outside in short T-shirts and 50-degree Fahrenheit uh, water. I mean, I mean, air is going to feel cold, but it's not going to do anything immediately. But you get into 50 Fahrenheit water without protection immediately lose control, complete control of your breathing and and all of this other stuff starts happening and you can you know if the water's cold enough you can lose the use of your hands if they're not protected you know within several minutes it just depends on uh, you know the circumstances but uh, that's another thing that i i like to emphasize is you know you, you it's not enough just to buy a wetsuit or dry suit you've got to think about how you're going to protect your hands because in a cold, a, a cold water environment, uh, you can be floating there in your life jacket and your perfectly serviceable dry suit, and you can be toasty warm, and yet your hands are numb and, and useless. And 
one of the things that we have on our website is a classic example of this where uh, the guy is, uh, he loses the use of his hands and he cannot reattach the skirt and it cannot pump the boat out. And so he has to swim to shore and his boat gets smashed against some <laughs> sea cliffs in Lake Superior. But that's exactly because he lost the use of his hands. So you mentioned one of the missions is um, education, or the primary mission is education for the center. Yeah. And so I know there's a lot of myth, myths and misconceptions out there. So I don't want to induce any hyperventilation or anything but here, but I'm going to throw out a baited hook for you. Tell okay. us about the Rule of 120. The Rule of 120 is a classic myth. And um, it, it also comes, it comes in a couple of different versions. Sometimes it's 110, sometimes it's 100, but let's just take 120. What it says is that the way that you would determine whether or not you need to wear thermal protection is by adding the air and the water temperature. So uh, in, in the 120 case, it would say if the air and the water temperature uh, equal 120 or higher, you can skip the thermal protection. The problem with that is that the air temperature doesn't have any bearing on it. The only thing that matters is the water temperature and what happens when you're actually in the water. So you can, you know, you can do the math and, and you can come up with uh, 120. Uh, if you just raise the air temperature up a little bit, you can drop the water temperature down and you can have a situation where you're told by that quote unquote rule, the 120 rule, that it's safe for you to paddle without thermal protection when in fact the water temperature can be 50 degrees no problem at all as long as you know if, if the uh, as long as the air temperature is warm enough and so that's that's uh, that's one of the myths you know there there are other myths uh, and we address them uh, on the website and and really uh, you know it's not an it's not an opinion it's it's more just like saying well you know here's what this myth says, here's what science says, and here's why that myth doesn't make any sense as a guideline for safe paddling on cold water. So we are also definitely in the myth-busting uh, business, uh, and I think we're making progress on that. I mean, there are a lot of things that people used to uh, hear, like uh, you know, the cure, uh, uh, you know, the cure for frostbite was rubbing snow on it. Well, we don't do that anymore. Oh, if you have a hypothermia victim, you know, don't let them fall asleep, slap them. If you have them have to shake them up, you know, you don't hear that anymore. So <laughs> I think, but these myths, they're tenacious and they, uh, they have some staying power once they get out there in circulation. And that's particularly true on the internet. So, I'm, I'm a member of a whole bunch of maybe like 50 different Facebook paddling groups, and I'm constantly on the lookout for these myths, and, and I'll put in you know links to our resources in the comments section when, whenever I encounter them, just to say, well, you know, that's a myth. Here's why. Go here, read about it, and direct them to the website or to uh, one of the you know articles that we've written about it. So speaking of the internet, uh, the internet can be a nasty place for those who have a, have a safety message. And there's, there's, <laughs> there's a large segment of the paddling population that just seems to want to actively avoid any discussion of safety. And, and we know that shouting the message of safety louder 
doesn't help and it just stirs the pot without positive results. So how can everyday paddlers promote safety without being labeled the safety Nazis? It's difficult. You know, it's a it's a small number of people who are opposed to safety and who, who tend to get uh, nasty on the internet. But, you know, the internet uh, tends to amplify their voices. And I think we, we see this in a lot of other situations, not just in, in paddling. I don't have a solution to that because I think it's a, it's a mental attitude. And I think the only thing that we can do is to remain civil on our end and just say, well, here are the facts. But I've, I've certainly been, uh, been called a whole bunch of nasty names for suggesting that people should wear their PFDs. But on, you know, in my defense, what I would say is there's no single, we know this. Every year, the Coast Guard reduces, uh, you know, releases a, a report on boating accidents and kayaking uh, is part of that. And we know that there is nothing more effective that you can do in terms of your own safety than wearing a life jacket or a PFD, personal flotation device. So it's a battle that's going to be long term. And, and I, you know, I think we lead, lead best when we lead by example. I won't paddle with anyone that's not wearing a PFD. If I show up and there's a group, one person doesn't have the PFD, I just excuse myself from the paddle. I mean, I'm not, I'm not there to beat anybody over the head, but I just don't want any part of it because in my experience, and that's 50 years of paddling, that's been my rule and I don't see any reason to change it. And, and it's been uh, also my experience that people who refuse to wear a PFD are also real sloppy on their other safety uh, aspects. So they've never practiced rescues. They really don't have any idea what they're going to do if they fall out of the kayak or it capsizes. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. So I think we we lead best when we lead by example. I hold large Facebook groups or equipment manufacturers or uh, magazines that get a lot of circulation. I hold them to a higher standard than I do just the individual paddlers. Because I think if you're in a position of influence, you have a responsibility not to undermine safety uh, in paddle sports. We have a long tradition of safety in paddle sports. It's one of the reasons why we are not regulated more than we are. And as thousands of new paddlers come into the sport, I think we do our, our own safety culture a disservice if we don't support it because we do have a culture in paddle sports and you see the new paddlers coming in. If everybody, if the cool kids are wearing PFDs, they will go out and buy PFDs. And the same goes for thermal protection. The same goes for swim testing their gear, all that sort of stuff. So it's a culture and culture is malleable. So it can change. It rises or falls on the actions of everybody in the sport, but particularly on those people who have influence. If a well-respected kayak instructor shows up at a clinic and doesn't wear a PFD, that sends a message to the students. They say, well, I, you know, they're making me wear this PFD, but I wanna be cool. And this guy that I think is really cool isn't wearing a PFD, so that's how I wanna be. And that's what I mean by leading by example. You know. And, so if you're in a position of influence, I think 
you you have an obligation to the paddling community at large as well as yourself to be a good role model for safety and that's something i believe very very strongly and i've you know i've i've tried to do that myself uh, for over 50 years excellent advice thank you so molten how can listeners reach you and learn more about the national center for cold water safety well you know john the easiest thing is just to go uh, to the website and uh We tried to pick a URL that was memorable. It's uh, www.coldwatersafety.org. And you just go there and and read. There's a a safety advocate I know very well. He works for one of the large uh, internet retailers uh, of paddle sports gear. And he tells his people to go there and dig deep. And I think that's, that's good advice. There's a tremendous amount of information on the site and one thing we've got is 20 different case studies with lessons learned right now, and they're tied to the five golden rules. So there's a we've dissected these accidents. There are lessons learned. We've got maps and so forth in there explaining exactly what, what, what went, went wrong in those situations. So uh, again, very practical information, but it helps to drive home the point, well, why should you? dress for the water temperature. Well, here are a whole bunch of incidents where people didn't, and this is what happened to them. So how is the work of your center funded? Uh, it's all donations. We don't accept any advertising, and that's that's something that um, I'm very, very hardcore about because I think if you start accepting corporate donations and you're an advocacy organization like ours, uh, it compromises your objectivity. And I, that's something I learned. I ran an organization in Washington, D.C. called the uh, Center for Environmental Physiology for 10 years. And I saw this firsthand all over Washington. The second, and, and psychology bears this out, the second you start accepting money from corporations, even if they mean well, you have this tendency to pull your punches or not to criticize them or to give them a pass and and that's not that's not the kind of situation we want to be in. So it's a, we're a very small organization. Nobody gets a salary including me. I funded this out of my own pocket uh, uh for you know 11 years uh, with the help of some donations from from people who believe in what we're trying to do. And everybody that's associated uh with the center is a volunteer. So in that sense um you know, when somebody says, well, you're, you know, it's, it's somebody doesn't like the safety message and they say, well, you're just trying to make money off this. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just have to laugh. There's no money in it. There just isn't, you know, and if I wanted to make money, I'd be in a different, you know, I'd be doing something in a different line of work. So we appreciate uh, the donations of individual paddlers and people who believe in, in helping us uh, to spread the message but we don't do advertising. And I, I, I in fact, uh, I've moved our videos uh, off of one platform and onto another because I, I just, I will not have ads associated with them. I think it just, um, you know, it, it's okay uh, if that's the way you're funding uh, your own organization, but I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to compromise our integrity or our objectivity. Well, keep up the good work. We appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate the message. So Thank you very much from both myself and and the paddling community in general. 
So it's been wonderful uh, talking to you today and learning about you and learning about the mission of the National Center for Cold Water Safety and the work that you're doing and how you're supporting the paddle sports world. So I really appreciate you, you joining me this evening. Well, John, it's been my it's been my pleasure. I, I really admire what you're doing with these podcasts and, and uh, you know, it's people like you and especially people like you that, that help us get the message across. And I know with your international uh, uh, audience, this is going to make a real difference. So again, I'm honored and thank you so much for having me today. You're welcome. So I have one final question. It's a question that we ask all our guests on the show. And uh, Molten, that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Oh, gosh. That's a tough question to answer <laughs> because there's so many fascinating sea kayakers out there. You've interviewed uh, a number of them uh, that, that would have been sort of at the tip of my tongue. But uh, I would say a real interesting guy uh, that I'd like to recommend is Greg Stamer. He's a superb expedition paddler with a lot of uh, a lot of experience. He's also a racer. He's very much involved in uh, Kayak USA, which is an organization that promotes Inuit-style paddling and and you know paddling with uh, Greenland paddles, that sort of thing. He's a guy who did this record-breaking 33-day circumnavigation of Iceland with Freya Hofmeister in 2007 a very accomplished and articulate guy and I think he'd be I think he'd be a fun guy for you to interview so let me throw his uh, his his name into the ring fantastic well I will connect offline with you we'll get Greg's contact information and reach out to him and try and get him on the show and uh, as I promised earlier I'll make sure I connect with you and we get more information uh, to specific areas of the uh, National Center for Cold Water Safety's website and uh, and on other resources you might have, and we'll include that in the show notes so listeners can go through that information and, and continue to do, develop their own base of knowledge. So again, thank you very much, Molten. I appreciate your time. You're welcome, John. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Great advice from Moulton. I hope you found his explanation and emphasis on the triple threat of cold shock, incapacitation, and hypothermia helpful. For my instructor friends, this gives you just one more way to illustrate those threats to your classes. Be sure to visit the show notes at www.paddlingtheblue.com where you'll find links to the National Center for Cold Water Safety and learn more about his research, read up on the five golden rules, and pour through some fascinating yet sometimes tragic case studies. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Eric Jorgensen. Eric is an author, adventurer, and expedition leader, and he'll be joining us from his home in Denmark. He has many amazing trips under his belt, and we're going to talk about a few that have really captivated my attention. I really hope you'll join us. And as always, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. 
You can subscribe to Peddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.